Well, what'd you guys think? That video, and some deep thoughts in there. Hey, we're gonna jump into Ecclesiastes again. If you wanna go ahead and turn there, we're in chapter two tonight. So go ahead and uh, jump into chapter two. Remember, go to the middle, open it up. You probably have Psalms or Proverbs. Go to the right a little bit, you'll hit Ecclesiastes. And we'll be in chapter two. So while you guys turn in there, we're gonna take a quick little detour once again through Greek mythology. You guys know who this, this dude is? Uriah, who is it? I can't remember his name, but I remember it all. You remember it? Somebody whisper his name to him. Oh, I hear somebody in the front row say it. Who just said it? No, it's not Jacob. Oh, you know, right here. Narcissus. This is an image of Narcissus looking into a pool and seeing his own reflection. So Narcissus' story goes like this, that uh, Narcissus was actually born from a Greek river god and one of the nymphs, um, and, and there was a, a prophecy about him. When he was born, it was prophesied that he would live a long a life if he never really knew himself. And so they didn't know what that meant, but that was the prophecy. And so uh, one of the things that was unique about Narcissus is that he was very beautiful. His beauty had kind of this magical, captivating uh, spell on people. And many people fell in love or was enraptured by his beauty and drawn to it, uh, men and women alike. It's just when people gazed upon him, his beauty was overwhelming. And uh, it says that at age 16, he was wandering in the woods with his buddies uh, out hunting and he got lost. He got separated from his friends. And as he was out in the woods, uh, wandering around trying to find his way back, a, 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 a nymph that was in the woods saw him and her name was Echo. And she was not able to speak to him because she herself had been cursed by one of the gods. You see, for her deceit and her deception, uh, she was cursed to only be able to repeat the last few words anyone had ever said. And so since she couldn't speak to him, she followed him along in the bushes until he heard some rustling in the bushes and he cries out, who's there? Who are you? And she responds, you, you, you. And then, he's, and then she comes out of the bushes and she goes up to him and captivated by his beauty, she goes up to him and grabs a hold of him and he pulls away and he goes, you know, get away from me, you know, um, uh, let me go. And, she's, and he's like, you can't stay, I can't stay. And she goes, stay, stay, stay. And then he, you know, as he had done many times, rejected many people who uh, had been enraptured by his beauty, though so many people fell in love with him, he refused to uh, reciprocate that love to anyone. And in the same way, dismissing her, uh, he pulled away from her and says, um, you know, let me go. I'd rather die than to have you love me. And she replied, love me, love me, love me. And so being dismissed by Narcissus, Echo uh, wanders off into the woods as he retreats away from her. And she finds herself a cave and she sits in this cave being exiled, no longer able to talk to anyone and being uh, dismissed by the most beautiful person she'd ever seen. The only person she truly felt like she could love. She sat in this cave until she withered away. And the only thing that remains of her was her voice. And so now as you go into the cave, the only thing you can hear is her voice repeating the last words that are, that are said inside the caves. And so Narcissus continues on. He finds himself there in the woods. And, and many people had, had been dismissed by his selfishness. He had wanted nothing to do with anyone, even though so many people had nothing but love for him. That uh, one person cried out to the gods, and Nemesis, the goddess of retribution, uh, finally said, this is enough. And so she led him to a pool where he then stooped down to drink of the water. And when he did, he looked into the water, and guess what he saw? the most beautiful person in the world. 
And he too was captivated by his own beauty. So much so that he couldn't take his eyes off himself. And so he sat there and he stared into the water, unwilling to move away and fell in love with this, this face that he sees in front of him. And as he reached out to touch this face, it would vanish only in a moment later to return again. And he would sit and stare at this reflection in the water and, and never moved. He refused to eat or go anywhere. And he laid there on the pool's edge, staring at his reflection in the water until he too withered away and there was nothing left of him. The wood nymphs that passed by that way who had seen him there many times laying by the water, unwilling to move, one day came by and there was nothing left but some flowers along the bank of the, of the water. There were these yellow and white flowers whose faces dipped towards the water's edge and those flowers to this day are called Narcissus, named after Narcissus, the Greek uh, god who was so enraptured by his own beauty that he was so selfish he wouldn't give love to anyone else that his demise eventually just left him wasted away and nothing left but these flowers that grow along the bank of the water, bending towards the water and staring at them. No good for anything else. And so it takes me back to the video where uh, Adam was talking as he was answering Brock's questions. And he was asking him these questions and he talks about what's your biggest sin, right? That's what we want to talk about tonight. What's your biggest sin? All right, we're going to take turns. We'll start right here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we won't do that. But you know what it is. And as, as Adam mentioned it, it was, his was pride. And pride is what made the devil the devil when he thought of himself more highly than God himself, um, it made him fall. And so as we talk about this, well, I love the little quote he says. I want to get it right. He says this. Adam says, when you're so busy looking down, you can't see up and you miss the most important thing. And that's what I want to talk about tonight as we get into uh, chapter two of Ecclesiastes. This wisdom Solomon has to drop on us. And so if you would look with me and follow along in Ecclesiastes chapter two, and we're going to be in verses uh, like one through 12 here. So here's what it says. Solomon, uh, who uh, wrote this, the wisest man, remember, he says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. Of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what, what, good, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven, or under the sun, during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which uh, to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, 
For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All right, so this one's a little depressing too. But stick with me, because it gets better, trust me. Just, just hang in there. So as he goes through this list of all the things that he had, um, he tried laughter. He tried money. He tried uh, physical pleasure. He had riches and wealth. He had people attending to him, people doing the work for him. He even applied to himself to doing work himself. Like, I'm going to do something. And none of these things gave him joy. It actually says it's vanity. In the Hebrew, that word is havel. Uh, and, and I've heard it summarized as at the end of all of this, what Solomon's discovered is that life is Havel, that it's a vapor. It's, it's another translation is mere breath. That's the totality of your life. If you add up the sum of your life in the scope of everything, it's a mere breath. It passes like when you go outside and you see your breath come out of your mouth and then it vanishes. That's literally the translation for that word the way you see your breath and then it's gone. That's what he would equate what our life is worth when we try to live it just on our own for the sake of doing those things. Now this is interesting to me personally because uh, when you guys are in school, do you ever do those votes where it's like, who has the best eyes? Who has the best smile? Who's most athletic, right? Yeah, I'm sure you got, you're most athletic. Um, but what he said, but one of those things that they had in our school was, was like most likely to succeed. And I was voted most likely to succeed. I'm not even sure why back then. I was like, <laughs> how do you know when you're in high school whether you're going to be most successful? But that idea, that moniker of most likely to succeed, people saw something in me that said, oh, Kip's probably, you know, out of all of us. Either they thought I was really good or they thought they, were, they, they had no hope. One or the other, Right. Um, but I carried that with me. And there were times where that idea of going, what was it that they saw in me? They kind of haunted me that I, I had this desire of like, I got to, if everybody's expecting this of me, then I got to make something of this. I can't squander this. Like, what if everybody's like, oh, we had such good hopes for you and look at you now. You know, it's like, I can't show back up at my 20 year reunion and be like, Hey guys, I'm a pig farmer in Tehachapi or, you know, whatever, you know? And they're like, great. We thought you were going to succeed, you know, or whatever. Um, if you know it, Tehachapi, it's a place in California. But anyway, the name sounds like what you would expect. But uh, <laughs> no offense if you're from Tehachapi. So um, I think one of you knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, uh, at this idea of just success, it kind of haunted me for a while. But then I realized I feel like I had a Solomon-esque, an Ecclesiastes-esque uh, understanding uh, when I really thought about life and what mattered. Uh, Ecclesiastes itself, the book of Proverbs, the wisdom that Solomon shares in Proverbs. Proverbs, in a way, I encourage you to read it. If Ecclesiastes resonates with you, read Proverbs. It's almost the antidote to Ecclesiastes. And so dig into Proverbs. There's wisdom found in there. So if you haven't read the book of Proverbs, read it. It's an easy one, too, because it's there's 31 chapters. And so a lot of people will say, just read one chapter every day, whatever day it is. Like today, I have no idea what today is. It's like, what? The 17th, if that's what day it is, read chapter 17. So you don't even have to feel guilty if you're like, oh, I was supposed to read 18 and 19. It's like, who cares? Today's the 20th, read chapter 20. You're going to get something out of it. So there's a little nugget for you. If you haven't gotten into reading scripture, 
Just go to Proverbs. You're gonna find something good in there. Just start reading until something stands out. You don't even have to keep reading. Once something stands out to you, just take that and work on that. Um, and that's a great little uh, piece of advice of how to make the Bible applicable. But here's what I wanted to share with you guys is like, when I looked back on my life, even now, I made a list of some things. Um, when we talked about this chart that I drew yesterday, I've erased it now so you can't see it. But um, remember down at the bottom, we followed that path over. And when it got down to the values of like uh, inside myself, you know, I look for purpose. And I, my whole goal, if there's no God, is that everything's relative to me. So I get to decide what's important. Or if it's outside of me, maybe it's in other people. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's in people around me, you know, those types of things. Maybe it's the experiences that I do. Or maybe it's just nature, the world around me and the beauty of it. Maybe that's where I'll find meaning and purpose. And so I made this kind of list of going, all these things is like for me, like from that, like even though I have a biblical view, I don't want you to, to think that these things down here are bad. They're not bad, they're misplaced. You see, all these things are true and good. The thing that's missing is God. Because you see, if you take good and you, take and you subtract God, you're left with zero. Literally, G-O-O-D. You take out G-O-D, you're left with O. A big O. And so here's some of the things that I, that I thought about. Spending time with my wife. Is that meaningless? It's like, no. Not if it's, if I understand the beauty of the way God created a relationship, holding my newborn children, like those experiences, the joys that I found, the love of my wife, the joy of holding my kids, the, the, the reconnecting with old friends, the sitting up late in the hours of the night, having deep, meaningful conversations, those experiences with other people that I've had and many other countless experiences, those human experiences aren't bad unless I remove God from them. You know, when I think of nature, like I've gotten to see the sunrise at the bottom and at the top of the Grand Canyon. I've gotten to, to hang off the half of Half Dome and, and look across the Yosemite Valley while climbing Half Dome. I've gotten to stand on top of mountains that no one else has ever stood on in 360 degree views. I've been places, I've gotten to hike up volcanoes that are dormant in, in foreign countries. I've gotten to ride across the African savanna for days to get out to tribes who live in the middle of nowhere and to see the animals and the people and the cultures. And all of those things, I could take those as being like great accomplishments. If it was just that, then I would echo what, what Solomon says, they're meaningless. But when I hiked that dormant volcano, I was doing it with my wife. When I hiked that Grand Canyon down to the bottom, I was with one of my best friends. When I was um, you know, going across that African savanna, it was on a missions trip to go and work with people, to teach them about God, to share the love of Jesus with them. And so when I put God into those experiences, when I'm climbing up Half Dome, one of my, my buddy Travis and I, whenever we would climb, we had this little, little red pocket Bible. And we'd carry it with us every time. We'd get halfway up and we'd open it up to Psalms. Each of us would read a Psalm. And I've hung off the side of so many rocks reading the Psalms of the Bible because I'm on this rock looking across nature, spending time with a friend, and I'm interjecting God into it because that's the only way it matters is to open up scripture and go, God, you are wonderful. You are amazing. You are a rock. You are a fortress. While I'm hanging off a rock 9,000 feet in the air, I'm giving glory to God because that's the only way it makes sense. That's the only way to give it meaning and purpose. 
And that's the challenge. Don't get dismayed by this because God created the friends in your life, the people in your life, the people who will come and go and the people who will still be friends long after you've parted ways. Those are a gift of God. But if you put your hope in them, they'll disappoint. While they can be a joy, they're not our hope. A relationship, children, career, even the beauty of nature. One of the most beautiful sights I've seen in my life is hiking five days in the back country of the Sierra Nevadas and coming over this hill and an entire grove of aspen trees as the leaves are changing. And the way aspen trees, they're called quaking aspens because as the wind blows, the leaves do this and they, and they shimmer like this. And imagine the fall colors that you get see here across an entire valley of leaves just shimmering. It looks like the, the, the valley is on fire with the colors of the trees while I'm up on this hill looking across as a river flows through. And I just, one of those moments that will be stamped in my memory forever. But if I go, that's beautiful and that's for me. Or if I go, God, you're amazing. If I'd never hiked back this far, I would never have seen that. And that's just the things we could see here. You know, one of my favorite stories, I love, I love telling us, I wasn't even planning on telling this, but it just, it's one of those ones that flipped my brain upside down and I wanna share it with you is that, have you ever heard of the Hubble Space Telescope? You know, how they send those out and they take all those pictures. Uh, there's another uh, NASA project they did. I think it was the Cassini t uh, probe that they sent out over to Saturn. They wanted to shoot it out to Saturn and fly all around Saturn. And it was, had this mission to go take all these photographs of Saturn. And one of the, the things that happened was, is they got close to it and started getting more close-up photos of the rings of Saturn. That, uh, that they noticed that it appeared as though the rings were braided. Like, it's not just a pile of rocks. There's actually like a structure to the rings is what it appeared like. And, and one of the, the two scientists were talking about this happened to be believers. And one of them said, could you imagine that? That since the dawn of creation, God braided the rings of Saturn and nobody had a clue until today when those photos came back. And he was like, God's amazing. Like, why did he do that? Like, nobody even had a clue that that existed until today when those photos came back. And the other guy goes, or did he just braid them for the picture? <laughs> and I go, I like that guy. Because that's the mindset we have to have is they go, God could have done that. But also God hid mysteries for us to discover and he wants us to reveal those mysteries. There's a verse in scripture that says, it is the, honor, the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of a king to reveal it. And I feel like that's what that Saturn idea is. Like God hid these little truths out there. Like I braided the rings of Saturn. And that it's kingly to discover those things and realize that God did that. And that's the kind of God that we have. See, the problem though is that that God loved us so much, he provided all those things, he created this world to be this way, and we went and messed it up. We went and messed it up. You see, here's, I wanna give you another little whiteboard sesh. You guys cool with that? Here's what we got. So, let me make sure everybody can see it. I'm gonna have to move this, aren't I? You guys can't see this. Let me move this again. So, here's the problem. So according to scripture, this marker doesn't work. <laughs> and according to scripture, this marker does. All right. So in Bible, we have God, right? And God is identified through scripture as the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. A triune God, a three in one. That's what triune means. Tri like tricycle, unity like unity. Huh? You get that? Trinity is the word we have. You won't find it in scripture, but that's what the Bible describes God as. A trinity of relationship. And he's eternal. He was before time and he's after time. This is the God the Bible refers to. A three in one God, a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. Eternally existing, three in one. We, however are what's called finite. We live inside time. We have a beginning and we have an end. All time began and all time will end and God is outside of that time. So we've got time that we're inside. We've got God who's outside of it. But this God chose to create. And in the beginning he created, don't laugh, this is an earth. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth and everything in it. And this God, who's a creator God, created these things for his own glory. And inside this earth, he put a garden with a tree, and he put a dude and a dudette named Adam and Eve. And he gave them one rule. Could you imagine if you came to camp? Camp, we have four rules. In the garden, they had one. They didn't have a modesty rule back then. It was Adam and Eve. You like that, didn't you? With one rule. And that's it. The rule was, do not eat the fruit from this one tree that's in the center of the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And deception comes along, and they are deceived, and they are tricked into disobeying God. Because all God asked for was obedience. That's all he asked for. I'll give you one rule. It's for your own good. Don't break it. But the trick of the devil was this. You can be like God. And when we are too busy looking down, remember what does pride do? According to Adam, it elevates you to a place you don't belong. And when you're up that high where you don't belong, all you can do is look down on everyone else. And they wanted to be up there where they didn't belong. And so they disobeyed. And that disobedience brought sin. And sin equals death. This has been our problem since the beginning. Our disobedience leads to sin, and sin equals death. So that's the problem that we've been working out since the beginning of time. Because we decided we wanted to be God. And that sin has echoed throughout eternity. You guys, throughout the story of history, we could do the whole Bible here like this if we want. We see that then Adam and Eve were for their own good banished from the garden. Do you know why they were banished? If you continue to read Genesis, here's what it says. It says that God says, they are now like us, Trinity. They are now like us, knowing good from evil. We cannot also let them reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever. So we see at the very beginning is that God's desire was that we would not be stuck in sin. Because if we had reached out, and disobeyed and taken from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then also taken from the tree of life and lived forever, we would be eternally condemned in sin. But God in his goodness says, that's not good for you, so I have to kick you out of the garden. So we can't have this intimate relationship thing like we have, because it's for your own good. So now, cast out of the garden, history continues, and God calls a guy named Abraham and tells him, hey, you need to go to a country because I'm going to reveal myself to all of the world through you. Abraham has a kid named Isaac. He has a kid named Jacob. His name is changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Because that's what we do. We wrestle with God. We are shadows of the same people 
wrestling with God. And so Israel had 12 kids. Those 12 kids become the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. So now we have these 12 tribes. They then are God's promise to Abraham is that through these tribes, as they scatter across the world, God will reveal himself through them to everyone. And that's what God wanted to do. But these people, the rest of history is just a story of their sin in a cycle that we can relate to. There's this thing we call in scripture, the cycle of apostasy. It's this idea that God has been good to us. We take it for granted. We look around and we see something better and we start to worship that instead. Ourself, others, humanity, nature, experiences, whatever. And when we look across to other gods and we prop those up as gods in our lives, then, then that's when trouble comes. And so for them, as they look to other gods of nations around them, God goes, I can't have this. I'm a jealous God. I've been good and I am good. And you're giving the worship that I deserve to a graven image, to a statue, to an idol, to all these other things that are not, that do not love you like I do. And so he would withdraw his hand of protection. Problems would come. They would be oppressed, sometimes even uh, like physically beaten and killed in war and all these things, taken as slaves, whatever. And they'd then cry out to God when everything got bad. And then they'd cry out, God would hear their cry, and he would rescue them. And then he'd rescue them, everything's good, and then they'd go, hey, everything's good. And then guess what they would do? They start looking around. They find the good things, they start looking away from God and look at other things, and then bad times would come, they'd feel bad, they'd cry out to God, God would hear them, he'd rescue them when they turned back to him, and then everything would be good, and then now everything's good, we start looking around, everything's bad, we cry out to God, God hears us, everything's good, as soon as everything's good, we look around, everything's bad, and we get into this cycle, and this happens over and over again. Sound familiar? We see this in Romans chapter seven. It's a verse that, that, that echoes this cry. And I love how he says, he goes, I know the good I ought to do, but I don't do it. The good I want to do, I don't do. And then I know the things I shouldn't be doing. And those are the very things that I do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he's like, ah, he's frustrated. If you read that verse in seven, you cannot read it without a tension in your voice. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, but I keep doing it. Ugh! And he cries out and he goes, who will rescue me from this body of sin? And the answer comes in the very next verse. Praise be to our Lord and Father, Jesus Christ. Because without him, we are doomed. We are hopeless. And this sin problem is not unfamiliar. So if you feel yourself feeling that same way, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. I know what I want to do, but I don't do that either. The Bible relates to that. Solomon relates to that. Here's what Solomon says as we get to the end of chapter 2. Read this. Starting in verse uh, 24, at the end of the chapter, he says this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him... Who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So what Solomon sees at the end of chapter two is that eat, drink, and be merry. 
but it's only for the glory of God. Everything we do, if we're not giving God the glory, it's, it's a vapor, it's meaningless, it's vanity. It's like looking into your own reflection in a pool and then trying to reach out and touch it. You can't. Anything short of God himself will leave you empty because you can search after all kinds of meaning in this life, but you won't find it unless you're looking to the one who created you and created the world, created the other people, and gave you the opportunity to enjoy the experiences, whatever they are, even good ones and bad ones. They can all be for his glory. And without that perspective, we are stuck in this sin and death, hopelessness. We're like Sisyphus, pushing the boulder up the hill only to watch it roll down again, over and over for eternity. Guys, there is more hope in this world than you can imagine. And my prayer for you is that you will get to the point in your life where the friendships you have and the people in your life will be something that you can give God glory for. That the experiences in your life, when you're standing on a mountain peak, literally or figuratively, that your attention turns towards God because he's the only one who put you there. You didn't do it on your own. You didn't do it because you're so awesome, despite what you might think or despite what accolades you got in your school yearbook. You see, I was voted class clown also at one time. But you know what I had to do to get that? I had to tell jokes that I knew I wasn't supposed to tell, but I did it anyway. I had to use language that I knew was offensive, but I did it anyway. I knew the good I ought to do, but I didn't do it. I knew the thing I didn't want to do, but that I kept doing. And because of that, I was popular. Everyone liked me. And they said, this guy's funny. And I was voted class clown. And then there was a guy who said this word to me one time because I was funny, guys. I knew what funny was. And he started telling these corny jokes. And I was like, man, your jokes are lame. I literally said this to a grown adult. And he goes, you know what? I'd rather my jokes be lame than something that God wouldn't be pleased with. And that was like a dagger in my back. And God convicted me and I realized, guys, I got this all backwards. I wasn't voted class clown the next year. I turned my back on that popularity and the choices that I was making. I wasn't funny anymore, but that's okay. I had to make that choice. But I still feel like, you know what? I was still most likely to succeed. Not on my terms, but on God's. And you can too. We're gonna dig more into that as we continue this week. If you guys would, pray with me as we wrap up. Father God, I thank you for just the truth we find in your word. Yeah, life sucks at times, and it's hard. And Father, uh, sometimes it feels hopeless. And sometimes we feel like the verse in Romans where it's like, I want to do what's right, and I can't. I don't want to do the things that are wrong, but I do them anyway. So Father, I just pray that, um, that each of us can understand Reveal to us the truth that's in your word. Reveal to us the truth that can only be found in you, that there is hope, but it only is in the name of Jesus. Father, help us, if we're in sin, to get out of it. Father, help us to cry out like the people of Israel, to recognize the trouble that is upon us, and to cry out to you because you are the only one who saves. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for the truth in your word again. We ask this in Jesus' name, who gave his life for us. Amen.